Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. We're here for another week. Uh, I was talking to someone last week. They said, uh, oh, I've not listened to the podcast for a while. Is it still just you talking to yourself? And the answer is yes, it is. But uh, we are sustained by our listeners. And uh, we've had a bulging post back this week. Um, uh, well, emails. A lot of uh, emails which we're going to get through. Uh, firstly, congratulations to Neil Robertson on winning the Players' Championship. Um, bad luck to Barry Hawkins. I thought Barry played considerably better, considerably better than he did in the Masters final. Um, but for long periods, Neil Robertson's safety was so good, Barry Hawkins just could not see a pot. It's all very well saying, you know, he's got to get in and do something, but he could not see a ball. I mean, there was 65 minutes in the match, a spell where he literally did not pot a ball. And for most of that, he couldn't see one. Neil Robertson played brilliantly. Um, he, you know, his all-round game, obviously not just his safety, but his potting, long potting, Break building and just his general poise, the way, you know, when Barry came back from 7-3 to 7-5, the way Neil Robertson just stood up and, you know, started to pull away. Very, very impressive. Um, he is very, very impressive. We know that. It's not, that's not breaking news. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people obviously already are looking at the World Championship, but uh, a lot of snooker to come before then. And of course, it wasn't only the uh, Players' Championship. We also had the Women's World Championship, which finished on Monday. And congratulations. To, uh, well, she's commonly known as Mink, uh, the, the young lady, she's just 22, Nutcherat, uh, uh, one, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to look, look up, but you see, I knew this would happen. I actually, I, I said I won't write her name down because, you know, it's, it's almost feels patronising. I, I will roll it off the top of my tongue and then, of course, uh, I couldn't do it. Nutcherat Wong Harathai. Nutcherat Wong Harathai. We'll call her Mink, uh, for, for now. Uh, fantastic win on the black against Wendy Yans in Sheffield. Um, it was streamed on, on Facebook, I know quite a few people watched it. And indeed, Kelly Barker was watching, great snooker fan, and uh, she leads us off the emails this week. She says, um, <clears throat> just a word really on the Ladies' World Championship. I really enjoyed watching the final and was very pleased for Mink. She's definitely the best of the young lady players and hopefully she'll be around for the next decade or more. Wendy played very well, though, and was very unlucky in the end. As for Mink, how do you think she'll do on the main tour? Obviously, it'll be a whole new level and she's likely to find the going tough, at least at first. I do think at her age, though, she's maybe best equipped of any of the ladies to do well in the future. This tour card may be a learning curve, but the future could be very bright. It was great to see the final streamed. 
Shame a bit more of it wasn't streamed if the ladies game wants to attract more attention. Thank you, Kelly. Well, we'll see. I mean, you're right. It, it is tough. It's a massive step up. Um, she did well in a recent Q Tour event, didn't she? She got to the quarterfinals, beat a few of the male players, including Daniel Wells there. So she's clearly got a lot of potential. Um, t- to be frank, you have to be a little bit fortunate, I think, with the draws. I mean, Rianne Evans, she's not won a match this season, but she's had some terrible draws. I mean, not what we know about the Mark Allen match, which she, she probably should have won. But she's drawn Barry Hawkins, she's drawn Mark Williams. You know, she's been drawing the real big hitters early on. Uh, on Yi hasn't played a full season. She's been in Hong Kong because of the pandemic for, for large parts of it. So she hasn't played a full campaign. Um, I hope Mink does well. I've written a column today for Eurosport, um, which you can check out on their website, eurosport.com, um, arguing that, uh, you know, she represents an opportunity for snooker to become more visibly diverse and actually start to represent more than just the sort of established fans, which we associate as being typically white, typically male, typically middle-aged. Now, that's not completely true. I mean, I was in Wolverhampton last week, and, uh, you know, there are all sorts of people there, which is great to see. It was a, a diverse audience, but uh, the, the, the base, uh, certainly in terms of participation, has been in the UK, has been traditionally male, um, and a lot of that has to do with basic prejudice. has been, you know, snooker clubs in the old days, a lot of them didn't let women in, you know, and work in men's clubs and so on deemed to be men-only establishments. There were occasions where women would play in league teams and they'd play the home leg at their club and it all would be well and then they'd travel to another club and they'd get there and be told, you're not allowed in, which is disgraceful. You know, looking back, I mean, just shameful. Um, so hopefully Mink represents a chance for snooker to spread its wings a bit in terms of how it looks, in terms of its audience and, you know, Jason Ferguson, the WPUSA chairman, his big ambition is to get snooker into the Olympics and for that to happen... It has to be seen to be for everyone, which it is. It's not an elitist sport, but it has a bit of catching up to do maybe with some other sports. But, of course, you, almost uniquely, what snooker can do is have men and women play together. There's no men's tour. The professional tour is open to men and women. We would love a Fallon Sherrock character. She did so well at the World Darts Challenge a couple of years ago, created headlines around the world. We would love that to happen. And if it's Mink who does it, all the better. So uh, good luck to her as she, uh, of course, she'll be on the tour next season. And hopefully in the Champions Champions, it depends on how many qualifying events there actually are. And, you know, a few, a few more Neil Robertson victories would help her because obviously uh, then the list would lengthen. But uh, it would be great to see her in that as well. Now on the Players' Championship, a couple of emails. Michael Glossop, first of all, he says, I believe the phrase is long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, just a quick message to say how much I enjoyed both your recent podcasts and the ITV4 coverage of the Players' Championship, of which you obviously played a large part. Thank you, Michael. He says, I'm interested to hear what you thought of the venue, as I like to attend as many events as possible, and agree with your oft-expressed opinion that location can be a big factor in success or otherwise of a tournament. Obviously, Aldersley Village fails your standard tests of being A, a leisure centre, and B, not being in a major city. That said, it seemed to be well-received, and I think I heard it mentioned that it's being retained for next season, presumably for the same competition. On a similar note, what's your thoughts on the English Open moving to the Brentwood Centre? That's a leisure centre as well, isn't it? Albeit one that's been used in the past, early 90s world match play. Personally a bit disappointed they're not keeping it at Milton Keynes. I went to the Robertson-Higgins final last November and thought the setup there was great, to be honest. Uh, well, there will be another tournament, um, Michael, in Milton Keynes. Um, so look out for that. Um, in fact, there's one coming up soon, isn't it? The European Masters the next season. That, that one of the other tournaments will be there. Uh, Wolverhampton, I think, actually, is, I think you could say is a major city. It's certainly part of a big um, area for snooker. Um, so the area is fine, and, and the tournament is very well supported. Ideally, I think what they want, 
and what they need is a bigger venue in that location. I know they looked at Wolverhampton Civic Hall and they thought it wasn't quite configured right for for television and for the for the what they needed. Um, the Aldersley Leisure Village is a fine leisure centre, but it's not a brilliant venue for snooker. I don't think. Um, I think they could get somewhere bigger, and I think they would have sold many more tickets if they had done. But the support was there, and they will be back there next year because it's a two-year deal. Um, it wasn't ideal as a venue, but the, the the area definitely is ideal. The West Midlands, in fact, uh, Tahir uh, Hajat, the MC, was telling me that uh, he he found out that in terms of participation by population, Wolverhampton actually is number one for snooker participation in the whole of Britain. So clearly, it is a place we should be going to, and. Um, yeah, it, as I say, it, it, the venue wasn't ideal, but it wasn't terrible either. You know, what the, the, one th- good thing about leisure centres is um, they have sort of high ceilings, you know, which is handy for TV, uh, setting up the lighting rig and everything. Um, sports halls, you can get, you know, the tables in, you can get spectators in. So, yeah, it wasn't terrible, but I think they could hopefully do better in the same area. Brentwood Centre I've never been to. Uh, as you say, they've had snooker there before. Um, it sounds like some sort of deal's been done because the, uh, there's pool there as well. So Matchroom, uh, I mean, Matchroom is based there, is down there. So didn't have to go too far to find that venue. Um, we'll see. I can't prejudge it. We'll see. Um, I do feel though, as I've said after the Masters that, you know, venue, we, we should be looking for venues in major towns and cities and, you know, venues with a little bit of class about them, um, rather than, Nothing against leisure centres, but they're being used for so many other things. They're being used for the gym, and I mean, there was a shooting club next door <laughs> as well. I think Neil Robertson might have <laughs> might, might have actually quite welcomed a chance to shoot that bloke in the audience who was trying to put him off uh, late at, late during the final, which was unfortunate. But that happens, you know, that's happened at the Crucible. That's nothing nothing new in snooker. Just someone had too many drinks and was being, being frankly a bit of an arse. Peter Neville writes, he said, I'm writing for the first time. Just went to watch the Players' Championship last Thursday evening. Very pleased to see two legends of the game. I thought it was a great venue and really enjoyed the atmosphere. I hope it, I'm assuming he saw, uh, O'Sullivan Robertson, the two legends. I'm just working out in my mind who that would have been. Um, anyway, I hope it returns next year. If it does, my plan is to get final tickets. We arrived just in time, which meant I was unable to buy the earpiece to listen to the commentary. This was the first time since my year 2000 visit to the Crucible I've watched live snooker without the earpiece. And I have to say, I much preferred it. I was focused on the game, had my own thoughts, or not, and just enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed the quietness of it. I do like the commentary, but I now feel that, for me, it's for watching it from the TV. From now on, when I watch snooker live, it will be commentary-free. As a commentator yourself, what are the thoughts on the commentary earpieces? I've nothing against them, and obviously used to be a fan. He says, I'm very much enjoying your podcast. I don't manage to listen every week, but very regularly, depending on live schedule. Well, that's, that's perfect. It's your choice, Peter. Um, yeah, well, it's, and again, your choice is to, <laughs> whether to wear the commentary earpieces or not. It must be said the commentary is, is tailored to people watching at home because you're commentating to the picture. So you'll be referring to things that people can see on screen that maybe not necessarily you're always going to see at the venue, although they do have the, they do have the screens, of course, uh, that people can watch as well. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I've never been in the position. I'm not sure I would, I would personally listen to the commentary in the audience, but some people like it. Some people don't like, like anything else. Um, you have to be careful. I mean, there's been times if you, if you say something funny, obviously, and people laugh, they can put the players off. It's never happened to me because I've never said anything funny, but, um, you have to be careful with things like that. Um, yeah, but you know, as I say, it's entirely your choice. I think it's good to have them. It's good that people have the choice. Some people do like uh, to listen to it. Um, 
and it helps just explain a few things maybe that they particularly just sat at the back maybe you can't see everything so clearly it helps to explain a few things some people don't like it and that's perfectly fine as well Gordon writes I really enjoyed listening to the not special part 2 episode and thanks for all the answers you provided to the questions I sent in I love the latest episode too and hopefully you'll get a guest speaker on in the near future well uh, not this week but anyway he said, I've been watching all the snooker that's available since the last email, and it's great to have seen Zhao back up his UK Championship win with the German Masters title. A few more questions in mind. It would be great to get your insights. I really like the use of the 360-degree spider cam at the shootout this year. It was a great technical innovation that should probably find its way to other tournaments, within reason, or it will lose its uniqueness. However, do you think the camera shot itself had too much use during the shootout? Don't get me wrong, the camera angle was amazing and gave such good insight into what the player is seeing at the bulkhead but it felt like the shot was too often used and sometimes looked like it was going to hit a player by mistake. <laughs> well, I'll just answer that now. I mean, that's, again, a matter of opinion. I think what is true is that in TV, when we sort of have a new toy as such, it, it gets used a lot because, you know, it's an opportunity to do something you haven't done before. That's at the judgment of the director. Um, I really liked it. I thought it was good and it'd be good to see it in, in other tournaments. Uh, Gordon continues it was great to see the German Masters back at the Temperdrome this year that venue is so unique in the snooker world once the pandemic is over I might want to take a turn over there at some point uh, two questions on this point what's the correct way to say the venue's name it's become a bit of a running gag on the Eurosport coverage uh, well it's called the Temperdrome I mean that's just what it's called it's called the Temperdrome um, he says do broadcasters get a say in the co- now this is a very niche question do broadcasters get a say in the colour of the carpet used for the match table Obviously, some carpet colours and sponsor colour combinations were atrocious, such as the 2013 World Championship, where the sponsor used yellow branding and a blue carpet was used on the floor. That was hard viewing. But how much say is there from a broadcaster side on the carpet colour to be used? Perfectly, I prefer red and grey colours, as they blend nicer with the table. Very strong blue and green carpets have a habit of blending into the table, making it hard for me to see. (coughs) Hard to see for me. Um, I don't know exactly, uh, Gordon... uh, what you know quite how sort of um involved tv is with the set i, I suppose i mean I, I, the, well the wider set yes they have to sign off but the color of the carpet i don't know how much arm resting will go on over that um i think probably a sort of a neutral color uh is best you don't want it to be too garish or patterned it's just there you know in the background isn't it so um I'm not sure they have. I'm not sure it's number one on the list of priorities for the TV companies. But uh, anyway, certainly you notice it if it, if it is off-putting. I agree with that. <coughs> Excuse me. And it continues. It's quite likely the Championship League will have two versions. Is it worth Matchroom having the ranking event version promoted by a wider available broadcaster while keeping the invitational version as it is? We discussed the free view, free sat thing, and it's going to be kind of bad for free sports if a free channel isn't available on free-to-air TV. Though FreeSat users can get it manually tuning to the parameters on their website, but you lose record live rewind functionality as a result. <laughs> what a sentence that is. <laughs> I didn't understand any of it, but anyway, he says, assuming Freeview don't negotiate to keep it. Be- being watching the players' champs on ITV, it's a great venue and event. Wonder if the time of year is a problem, compounded by the venue being a leisure centre. Neil Robertson was talking about the venue being very cold. Should WST try to find some way to make the auditorium hotter to prevent the slow table situation? that seem to have dogged the week. Loving the podcast, keep up the good work. And then he says, Sports Social seem to have changed the audio player they're using. Uh, it shows no episodes now. They're using Megaphone, not Spreaker. Spreaker. 
So I had to find the podcast on Spraker Manly to hear the latest episode. Hopefully that's fixable. Again, I don't understand any of that, but um, they have, yes, there is a new platform. But you can, if you go on the Apple Podcast website, you can listen for free on there. You don't even have to download the podcast on there. Um, and there's many other platforms where you can do that as well. So it is, it is, it is out there. Um, the Championship League thing, well, you know, you get the broadcasters you can get, I suppose. Um, I think, uh, you know, if, if it left free sports, you, you probably online, I guess it would be where, where it would be. Um, the venue was quite cold, um, but it did, they, they did, that's the problem with being a small venue. You didn't have to walk too far from the table to be outside, you know, and it's a cold time of year, February. So that's one of the problems with the small table. They, it, it did heat up a little bit on Sunday, and the table played very well on Sunday, which is good. Um, so, uh, yeah, so hopefully that answers that. Donald Murtar, um, whose name I never pronounced correctly, I don't think, but he, he's a in, very interesting email this about about something that happened uh, at Wolverhampton. He said, I've noticed that re-racking has become increasingly common over the last 20, 30 years. In yesterday's final, there are at least three of them. The original purpose of re-racks was to resolve a stalemate situation wherein neither player could make progress. It used to be the referee that was the principal arbiter of when a frame should be restarted for this reason. But in more recent times, it's mostly the players that decide when to abandon a frame. In most cases, the players make the dis- this decision not because a stalemate has arisen, but rather because the balls have run awkward and the players don't fancy the drawn-out period of tactical play that be re- will be required to resolve it. An example from yesterday's finals is when Barry tried to pot a red along the cushion past the black, which was over a pocket. As it happened, the red clipped the black, causing it to fully block the pocket, with the misread directly in front of it. Neil and Barry then decided they didn't fancy playing a frame in which one of the black pockets would likely be unavailable for most of the frame, and with 13 and 14 reds on the table, they decided to re-rack. As far as I could tell, the ref made no attempt to intervene in their decision. In this situation, there was no question of a stalemate. Neil could easily have played a safety back to bulk and the frame would have proceeded as normal, albeit with one of the black pockets and the black itself out of commission because it was over a pocket with a red directly in front of it. There are more than enough points available for a player to win the frame without needing to pop the awkward red. So the only reason for abandoning the frame is because neither player fancied the layout of the bulls. Personally, I really enjoy these awkward frames where a colour is over a black pocket with the remaining reds grouped around it and the players are forced to play a series of safety shots that inevitably move the reds closer and closer to the coloured pocket. It annoys me that the players are allowed to unilaterally decide to abandon such frames for no reason other than they prefer to play frames which wherein the balls are more conventionally positioned and conducive to winning the frame in a single visit. I don't know of any other sport which allows the players to abandon a match when playing conditions become awkward. In a match play game of golf, the two players tee off into the same thicket of heavy rough. They can't agree amongst themselves to restart the hole again from the tee box. Similarly, if it starts raining or the wind gets up when a football match is about to start, the players or managers are forced to play under the less than ideal conditions, even if they both prefer to postpone the game until the weather, Im- until the weather improves. Personally, I'd rather see the players forced to play their way out of an awkward situation wherever possible, and for the decision about whether to re-rack a frame to rest solely with the referee. Again, I recognise that re-racks are needed to resolve genuine stalemates, such as when a red goes over a bolt pocket, and therefore the only safety shot available is rolling into the back of the reds. However, increasingly players are abusing the rule to weasel their way out of unappealing positions. So I'm not quite saying ban the re-racks, but I am saying let the ref rather than the players decide when it's appropriate to re-rack a frame. Thanks very much for all the pods. Did your beer ever arrive? Well, (laughs) on that point, uh, I was doing a beer advert and um, I was promised free free beer. It never arrived, no. And I was asked to do the advert again and I said no. 
for that very reason. I found principles, uh, belatedly. I had none, of course I had none initially. I was happy to, I was happy to receive the free beer. It didn't come, so I won't be advertising their beer again. Uh, but anyway, on the more, <laughs> on the more serious point about the re-racks, I think it's very well argued email. Um, that's, that specific frame, I agree, the re-rack came very quickly. I suppose, I don't know necessarily if the referee could say, no, you're not re-racking. If the two players say, um, we, we want to start again, um, it's interesting that the referee can force a re-rack. They can say, you know, you've got three shots each or whatever, um, to resolve this stalemate. Um, but that's a stalemate. The, the situation you describe wasn't. Um, so the referee, I don't, I'm not quite sure if they, well, they are the authority on the frame, so I suppose they could say, no, you're playing on, but if, if a stalemate then ensued, then there probably would be a re-rack. It's certainly true, re-racks happen much more quickly now. Um, players typically, for example, if a red goes over a pocket, it's different to the situation described here, but if a red goes over a pocket and, you know, all the reds are on the table, all they're going to do if, if they can't see that red, is, is sort of roll up to the pack, or, or you know, it, it, you, we all know the situation I'm describing. Um, but uh, well, it's an interesting. I think it's an interesting point, and we've had another one actually about three racks from Mark Wallace. He said, having seen three racks so far in the Players Championship final, including two in the same frame, it made me wonder what is the record for the most three racks in a single frame. <clears throat> I think there's definitely been three before now. Um, having said that, I say definitely, I can't remember, <laughs> can't remember any details, but I'm pretty sure I've seen three. Um, two is not uncommon. Uh, if anyone out there knows, I don't know the, the, um, specifics, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's been three in a frame. The first one with two was Neil Foles, Dennis Taylor at the 1987 Masters. I got that from Matt Tresco's Masters Almanac. Um, and Dennis actually made a century off the back of it. And I think Neil Robertson did the same. Uh, in that uh, frame of the, of the Players' Championship with the two re-racks. He made a century in that frame, I believe. The only podcast in the world right now discussing re-racks. I'm proud of it. Proud of it. Uh, what I'm not proud of is the fact that a couple of emails actually went into the spam folder and I've only just discovered them. So these were sent a few weeks ago. Apologies to the next two correspondents whose, uh, as I say, their, <laughs> their fine words were lost down the back of the sofa. But I've uh, thankfully re, uh, rediscovered them. The first one is from Gareth McGinley. He said, I was interested to listen to your discussion about snooker books and agree that Gordon Burns' pocket money is the book by which all others should be judged. Like the game itself, snooker books enjoyed a golden age in the 80s and have had something of a resurgence again over the past decade or so. I'm curious, however, as to why none of the modern snooker journos, yourself, Phil, Michael, etc., have been amongst the authors. Is it because you regard snooker books as old hat in comparison to podcasts, just because you haven't the time or the inclination? I'd be interested to know what topic you'd focus on anyway if you ever did write a snooker book. I'm very much looking forward to Luke Williams' forthcoming Patsy Hulian bio. I'm hoping that Alan McManus gets around to finishing the book on Scottish snooker he mentioned a couple of years ago. A few of the books I'd love to see would be a Kirk Stevens autobiography that takes account of the North American hustling circuit, a history of the Irish masters that forms part of a wider story about the Irish snooker scene, and maybe even a book inspired by your recent visit to the infamous Norbert Castle Hotel. Perhaps other listeners could share their own snooker book ideas as well. Keep up the good work on the podcast, by the way. The current heavy focus on a diverse range of listener opinions makes it just about as enjoyable as it's ever been, in my opinion. Well, thank you, uh, Gareth. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it takes a long time to write a book, I suppose, is the first thing. And you don't earn fortunes from them. You know, it's, it, it would have to be a labour of love to do it. I know that during lockdown, Phil Yates began writing a kind of book about his time in snooker. 
Um, and he sort of abandoned it. I don't know whether he got fed up of it or, or what, but he wrote a few chapters, which I read, and it was, I can imagine, really good. But I don't know whether he's you know, going to get around to finishing that or not. Um, <clears throat> the only book... Uh, well, I've, I've been involved in two books. One was an e-book, um, Snooker's Greatest Matches, which you can find on Amazon, I'm sure. And uh, and that was based on some articles in Snooker Scene about... It was a series, Snooker's Greatest Matches, which we collated for the e-book. The other one was Ken Doherty's um, autobiography, Life in the Frame, which I helped him write, um, which was an interesting process. But as I say, you know, you're not you're not going to retire off the back of writing a snooker book. So it would have to be a labour of love. I do have one idea, which I may uh, roll out in due course. And uh, I guess, you know, the, 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 put it this way, if I sort of retired, hope, which hopefully will be a few years in the future yet, I may sort of want to look back and, and give my sort of thoughts on, on the year of snooker I covered. Um... But one thing I wouldn't do, and, and this, of course, would, would be a great selling point for the book if I did it, is try and stitch anyone up. You know, I've seen things that have gone on, you know, at, at snooker involving well-known people, and, and they would be newsworthy, but I'm not going to stitch anyone up because people's private lives are their own affair. You know, I could stitch myself up, actually, anyone. I mean, we're all, you know, we're all human beings. We all, you know, add a few, few many, two drinks now and again and whatever, you know, but, but all that's no one's business. Um, I would not write, want to write a tell-all sort of revelatory book about all of that because, it, frankly, it's, it's not, not anyone's business. I'm more interested in what's gone on on the table. So, yeah, no, no firm plans to, to write one. Uh, I wasn't aware Alan was thinking of writing a Scottish snooker book. That would, that would be terrific if he did. Um, Barry Hearn, I know, has got his autobiography coming out in April um, during the World Championship, which uh, I'm sure will be a great read. How could it not be? Um Autobiographies, I'm not talking about Barry here, but in general, autobiographies, whatever the, whatever the area the person's from, are by their very nature self-serving affairs. They're very much the case for the defence. Um, I kind of prefer biographies. I kind of prefer a journalist writing about a subject from a more sort of, in theory, a more impartial view. Um, but, yeah, like I say, it takes a long time and... Uh, you know, you're not exactly well paid for it, so it would, it would be a labour of love. But yeah, the Pasahulian one, I mean, it, it's quite a niche subject, but I know Luke uh, is researching it very, very carefully, and uh, it'd be an interesting story, that, I'm sure. So look forward to that one. And uh, anyone else out there with any book ideas, let us know. Now, the other uh, podcast that, the podcast, the other email that fell down the, the back of the sofa was from Dave Priest. He said, I love the podcast, I listen every week. Thank you, Dave, unlike uh, one of our earlier correspondents. But anyway, uh, so the last podcast, uh, one of your great correspondents wrote of fond memories of the 80s and how on and off the scores came on the screen. When he suggested that breaks, well, because we covered this last week, but he said when we, he suggested breaks were only noted from 44 upwards, I thought, no, my memory as a 10-year-old watching my first TV snooker was that the break started at 40, which makes far more sense than the random number 44. I included a screenshot of Cliff Thorburn's 147 when he got to 40. Coincidentally, his point score is 44, but that has nothing to do with it. Well, he has included the screenshot, and uh, we did cover this last week, but it seems that 40 was the mark, um, although there's a, an email, I think, coming up where someone claims actually it was even um, even earlier than that. Um, we'll get to that in due course. Now, uh, he has a question here, Dave. He says, Turkish Masters, first-round losers, as in all comps, get nothing, but what about the players who draw the top seeds have to play their first-round ties in Turkey rather than closer to home, uh, for most in Leicester? Not only do they get a tough draw, but they have to spend more on travel, which is a double whammy, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, 
Is there a pun there? I don't know. Anyway, he says, please keep podcasting. It's already the least professional, but the best of the lot. Yeah, there's a backhanded compliment. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, they, no, they do. They get, in the tournaments in China where the same thing happened, they would get, I think, £2,000 to help with their expenses flying over there and whatever. So they get expense money, I believe. I don't know how much it is in Turkey. But, it, it, yeah, because it's not the same as driving to Leicester, clearly. So they do get some money. Um, and as I say, it was 2000 I believe, in China. Uh so, yeah, that answers that, hopefully. Daniel Clark, he says, Firstly, as a big fan of both Snooker and Bob Dylan, I love the email last week on venues that have housed both. I live quite close to Ronnie Wood's house here in Ireland, and I know he has a fine snooker room in it. Bob has stayed there on occasion, and it gives me a bit of joy to think of them whiling away the night with a few best of fives for a tenner. Anyway, on to the main point of my email, the camera angle. Why in an era when we're blessed with so much televised snooker are we cursed with such a poor main camera angle? In the old days, this was more understandable as the makeup of the arena dictated camera positions. But nowadays, in these purpose-built arenas, there's no excuse. I know the argument is that the sponsor board at the bulk end must be seen on screen, but surely the priority for any televised sport should be the, aud- should be the audience they hope will be watching. More often than, than not, though, those watching from home are left with a flat, distorted view that makes the table look more square than rectangle. Time and again in tournaments with multiple tables, the angle on the screen from the outside tables is far better than the one from the main table. Look, of course, it's wonderful we have so much snooker on TV and I shouldn't really be complaining, but this seems such an easy thing to get right. It's very frustrating that no one seems to be bothered. We have an email also, I'll cover that in a minute, but we have one from Matt on a, on a similar subject. It says, first time listener here, I really wish the BBC would not have the bright yellow bar permanently on screen. For those who have old TVs, this can be very damaging with a chance of screen burn. I don't understand why they changed it. I much prefer how it looks for the tours and Eurosport. <clears throat> well, we, a lot of people have, have written in about the, the yellow bar, and you know, I think we've uh, kind of exhausted that subject. On the on the camera angle, there is a again we spoke on this before. There is a need to in the agreement with sponsors to get that signage in on the sort of permanent shot. Um, personally, I think and maybe our correspondent would disagree with this, but I think once the tournament starts, you just kind of get used to the angle. Um, at first it may seem distorting but a couple of days in um, does anyone really still notice it I don't know maybe they do um, but anyway uh, maybe that's why we need these new sort of cameras uh, the, the 360 degree camera um, gives you a different view entirely um, it, it, it can be I mean even commentating that the main angle can be distorting quite often you know you're not quite sure if, if a ball pots past another one um, and then you, you, you look sort of side on and it Goes really easily, and you think, well, that's I didn't I didn't think it did because you are looking at it uh, from a particular angle, and whatever the angle is, um, it will be slightly distorting unless it's directly overhead, um, and you can see things clearly. Uh, Matthew Tempest, Bob Dylan again, has come up here. He says, please pass on my thanks to whichever listener it was that collated the snooker venues with Dylan's backdrop of continuous touring for the last sixty years and counting. I think John Doran was the, the correspondent last week. He said, I got them all, bar the Cardiff one. And I can add that I saw Dylan at the Tempodrome myself on two of the three nights in October 2013, and then subsequently under the same roof as the Trump v. Dot Semi in 2019, and this year's Maguire v. Ford, Robertson v. Walden, and Walden v. Zhao. Incredibly, incredible, really, but only for those of us into both Dylan and Snooker, I guess. I'd say that's a big Venn diagram there, Matt. He lives in Berlin. He said it'd be great to, great to see Simon Lichtenberg, who plays at my club here in Berlin, or rather, I I practice cack-handedly at his as qualified for Turkey. Yes, uh, good to see. Uh, 
great to see him play at the Tempodrome, wouldn't it? But of course, he'd have to win two rounds to get through. Kerry Richards, we're going all, all different subjects here. Kerry Richards, is there any record kept of attendance at tournaments, whether daily or over the tournament as a whole? Linking back to an email I sent a few weeks ago around locations and geographical hot and cold spots, I wondered whether there were differences in crowd numbers depending on the tournament in question and the location. Well, traditionally, uh, I mean, they, they yeah, they, 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 have a, they keep a note, World Snooker would keep a note of how many tickets they sell, obviously, so they would know the attendances. They used to publish them at the Masters years ago, and obviously Wembley Conference Centre, in the, uh, the heyday of that, that was the, the biggest arena in Britain, so you would potentially get over 2,000 people there. Um, so the biggest attendances in Britain, I'm guessing, would have been there. Um, Alexandra Palace now running it pretty close. Um, but there was Queen Elizabeth Hall in Hong Kong. Uh, they had 3,000 seats there, I believe, and um, they played. Uh, well, they played a ranking event there. They played snooker there. In invitation events, Neil Robertson actually won one, didn't he, a few years ago against Ronnie O'Sullivan, and he said it was the best atmosphere he'd ever played in because it was just packed for people. So, shame that tournament never took off actually because that that seemed a great event, an invitation event. At first, maybe could have become ranking. I think that was the plan, but nothing more was kind of heard about it. Um, so. Yeah, there isn't a definitive list anywhere, but um, you know that those will be the tournaments with the most. Uh, of course, not every day at the Masters they sold all the tickets. There's some, you know, few hundred people sometimes would turn up, depending on who was playing. Uh, and I guess in terms of you say the differences in crowd numbers depending on the tournament and the location. Yeah, I mean the location in terms of a the venue size, but also the interest in that area is not always necessarily that high. Um, tend to find, in, you take out the sort of real major tournaments, in the early rounds of most events, the crowds are not great and they build up as the week goes on, as people are aware that tournament's on, and also a lot of people can only come at the weekend or only want to come at the weekend because it's the final. So you not, won't necessarily, outside of the World Championship and the Masters, you won't necessarily get a full house every day. I would put the UK Championship in there as well, that, that uh, in York at the Barbican, that does really well. Um, but other events, it's difficult going to a new venue. That's why I think uh, at Wolverhampton, they're really happy because, you know, it's basically full every day, pretty much. Um, and they released extra seating for certain sessions in the final. Um, and that's what you want. Whatever the size of the venue, you just want it to be full. Um, and, uh, well, by the, as I say, largely during the week it was. Simon Powell writes, Firstly, thank you for continuing to produce this wonderful podcast. I'm a long-time and avid listener, but first-time contributor. I've often thought my thoughts, opinions were neither groundbreaking nor well-informed enough to offer up for the consumption, but have come to the conclusion that any dialogue from and to fellow lovers of this wonderful sport holds some merit. Well, I'm not sure... My, listen, Simon, I'm not sure my thoughts and opinions are that groundbreaking, but I've been, I've still been doing the podcast for seven years, so, uh, so crack on, I would say. And indeed, he does crack on. He says, I've watched snooker regularly since the mid-1990s. I was born in 1985, so it would have been tennis when I fell in love. I've always been a huge Ronnie O'Sullivan fan. I live in Chesterfield, just down the road from Sheffield, so I get to go to the Crucible reasonably often. Uh, get to go to the Crucible reasonably often. My first trip was in 1998, when I was too ill to go to school, but made a near-miraculous recovery in order to take in Ken Doherty versus Stephen Lee and Mark Williams versus Steve Davis. Unfortunately, our cool English teacher, Mr Speed, was also a snooker fan and had managed to watch some of the BBC coverage between classes. Don't think I need to fill in any blanks here. It was worth the week of stock-checking and cleaning the library, though, to be fair. Incidentally, Keith, bracket Mr Speed, and I regularly enjoy a pre-crucible pint together. Now he's retired, and I'm, I'm no longer playing truant. This is nothing to do with anything, but I always find that weird. Um, 
if you meet a teacher later in life and you start using their first name, you know, Mr. Speed has been to you, now he's Keith. Anyway, that's just weird. But anyway, uh, he says, the point I was really intending to make before Snooker Nostalgia took over was in regard to Ronnie O'Sullivan, and it's just a hunch without collating any evidence to back up my theory and my thinking, is that age has seemingly caught up with him in regard to backing up great wins performances. In the Players' Championship... He was superb in beating Trump, but pretty mediocre against Robertson. And my hunch is that this has happened a few times in the past couple of seasons. I.e. the high level is still in there, but maybe takes more out of him these days. And a top four or five opponent seems to catch him a bit devoid of spark, certainly in the early parts of matches. Conversely, his grit and battling quality seem more evident than ever before, which leads me into thinking that the World Championship now offers him his best chance of another big title. Would have posited entirely the opposite a few years ago. A sluggish start could manifest itself as a 6-2-5-3 first session deficit, but with time to play his way back into rhythm or find that spark in sessions 2 and 3, as opposed to a best of 9 or best of 11, where he finds himself on his way home without really getting going. Maybe I'm reading too much into it or possibly conflating it entirely, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks for wasting your time with my mental meanderings. Um, <clears throat> yes, uh, no, interesting. I mean, I did feel in Wolverhampton... The class of '92, um, you know, Ronnie, John Higgins, Mark Williams—they all suffered similar fates, didn't they? Um, they all won their first match, and then they all fell apart a little bit in their second match. Mark Williams—I mean, he had three centuries. He led Ricky Walden five-two, um, but lost six-five, so it went wrong. Ronnie O'Sullivan, I thought, played superbly against Trump. Did not reproduce that against Robertson. And John Higgins did not play great in his second match. He beat the same Fai in his first. Didn't play particularly well in his second. So they all kind of took a step backwards um, in their second match. Um, but, you know, they've all been playing some pretty good snooker here and there over the last year. Ronnie's won a title. Mark Williams has won a couple of titles. And John Higgins has been in finals. You just never know. I, I think, though, as players get older, the inconsistencies maybe do creep in. And that's why at the World Championship... Maybe, conversely to what you said, actually it would catch them out because you only need one bad session. You could lose a session 7-1 and be in serious trouble. Uh, but they're all great players. And I, I mean, I was talking to someone last week who fancies Williams for the title. I've been looking at John Higgins as a potential winner. And Ronnie, of course, is, is very much a potential winner. Um, gonna be interesting to see how they get on there. Um, my, my hunch is if I, if I had to make a prediction that none of them will actually win it this year, but, if they did, all, all all's good because you know you can't argue with any of them being world champion again. Ian Lewis, uh, on a recent show, the subject of table quality came up. I wondered if it would be possible to get one of the table fitters on the podcast. It would be great to hear their side. How long do they get? What maintenance happens during the tournament? How do venues differ? How do they test the tables? Uh, it's an interesting idea, Ian. I think actually it, it, a better uh, one maybe would be to get. I suppose World Snooker would have to do this. World Snooker Tour, we must call them, because they are World Snooker Tour. Um, to actually show people how a table is put up and to speak to the guys there. I mean, I think they may have done this actually in the past, but it'd be interesting just to see how long it takes. You know, you hear, we hear commentators say, oh, the table was recovered overnight. Well, how long did that take? You know, what, what is the process once the cloth's been replaced and the cushions have been replaced? How long does it actually take to test the table, as you say, to check its level, to check its plane properly? Uh, every venue has its own challenge and, you know, it's not easy to get those tables level at these, at these venues, um, because don't, don't suppose the floor is level to start with. Um, and you see players now, I mean, very sort of theatrical. If they play a slow roll and the ball drifts off, 
They wave their arms around like they're directing traffic, you know, like air traffic controllers, um, just to let everyone know it's the table and not them. And fair enough, you know, they want the table to be level, obviously, but you, you don't sort of, you don't hear much about the table when it's playing well, do you? Um, but I think that would be maybe a sort of video just showing people. I think in general it'd be great to see, you know, what people do behind the scenes at, at tournaments. You know, what does a TV cameraman do all day? What does, you know, a referee do when they're not refereeing? What does even a commentator, you know, what, how do people actually spend their time at the snooker? What is their, what are their jobs? What are their roles? And maybe that's uh, something people would, could watch rather than, rather than maybe a podcast. I don't know. But uh, anyway, thank you for the suggestion. David Burney from Canada, he says, can anyone that has the money pay their dues and enter the qualifying from the World Championships? Not that I'm thinking of it, but maybe I can coax a great Canadian player to try it out and maybe a Cinderella story could come true when the Maple Leaf will be back on the Pro Tour. An update on the Canadian side, we're having our own BC Open Snooker Championships on February 18th to the 20th. It's an amateur competition, but it'll be streamed live on the Q Sports Live page, on the Q Sports Live page on Facebook. So it's February 18th to 20th. Uh, the uh, the Canadian snooker, and Dave also uh, he's coming over to the Crucible. He's offering to buy me a drink, which uh, is very kind of you. And uh, well, we'll see. I mean, you know, uh, we'll see uh, if uh, the graduate is open again. I'm sure it will be. Um, no, you can't just pay your money and enter. There's uh, there's an expanded field for the World Championship, but um, it's not completely open. It's uh, people are obviously either on the tour or they're invited through various ways. There'll be a list in due course of the players. Uh, who were invited, so you, you can't just pay your money. But it'd be nice to see a Canadian, uh, certainly, you know, back in the World Championship. Obviously, uh, the glory days of Cliff Thorburn are, uh, and, and Co are a long time ago, but uh, as we know from yourself, there's still a lot of interest in Canada. Now, Michael Holt, once again, not that one. Uh, he says, thanks for reading out my last email. I hope this one finds you well. February's hotting up here in SoCal. It was 32 degrees today. Thanks for letting us know that. It's, it's certainly not here. Anyway... Speaking of hotting up, I love vin the vintage rocket performance against Trump. Can he do it again against the Thunder? I certainly hope so. Would love to see him reach number one against 46. Uh, spoiler alert, he didn't. Uh, anyway, he says, uh, I'm writing to explain another very popular game from my misspent youth in the billiard halls of Manchester. Now, this is uh, about a few emails about uh, different variations on snooker, the way people have mixed it up and played little games around the snooker table. Uh, over the years. And Michael says, doubtless I'm a, a little nostalgic here, but there used to be so many busy clubs with loads of regulars hanging around the bar, playing backgammon cards or one of the many gambling cue games to be played on table one right in front of the bar. Golf was one such game. Usually four players, each of whom has their own cue ball and object ball. White onto red, yellow onto green, brown onto blue, pink onto black. Hole one is the top left corner, second top right and so on. Clockwise around the table, finishing with the sixth hole in the left centre pocket. You'd all chuck in a fiver and the red would be placed on the blue spot and player one would queue up to the white from the D. The idea being to pot your object ball in each hole in sequence, each time respotted on the blue spot. You'd often be trying to set your balls up for next time rather than risking a difficult pot and missing and losing position. However, the others would also be setting themselves up and trying to snooker you or move your balls to bad positions. Any foul, potting the wrong ball or yours in the wrong pocket and you'd go back a hole. As well as being fun and engaging a group of players, golf is a skillful game requiring good knowledge of the angles, not to mention solid potting with all the long blues into corners you're faced with. Good club players might make breaks of two or three holes, but a round in one was a very rare occurrence and required an Alex Higgins special to smack a long blue in the top left corner from the D, fizzing with a ton of side to check back for another long blue in the top right. Needless to say, if you did that, you might win once or twice, but then no one will want to play you again. Yeah, another variation. I mean, these uh, these games, uh, as I, say, I think I said last week, Snooker's a hard game to play if you're no good at it. So these little variations, 
could just make it more fun, and uh, it's always interesting to hear about them. Now, Andy, uh, from the Snooker Shed, he said, I love the podcast and your snooker commentary. You just have a voice to listen to. Well, <laughs> we're, 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 what, about 40 minutes in? Let's, let, let's putting that to the test, Andy. But anyway, thank you. He says, I love the game like yourself. I started with my grandfather watching back in the early 80s when fashion was as important as the game. After a 30-year break, I'm back playing God, it's tough at 50, not unless you're the class of 92. So to my wife's delight, I've built a home table to improve as fast as I can before age truly catches me. Please have a look at the YouTube channel, uh, Snooker Shed, to see me spout some Scottish snooker waffle and look at my different practice table, which is catching on around the world. It would be a fantastic honour to have you watch my stuff. I will have a look, I promise. Uh, you, you may have seen Dave Gilbert wearing my logo while beating Judd in the Scottish, then to lose out to John in the next round. John, however, is very elusive to get hold of. I'd love to have him sponsored by the snooker shed. Uh, have you ever seen a ref sponsored by someone outside the tournament organiser? I would love to sponsor one. Well, no. Um, I, I'm pretty sure the referees, uh, they're sponsored collectively. I don't think you can sponsor a specific one because I think that will be frowned upon. So that they have... They have their own, uh, I can't remember who they are now, but they, they have their own sponsorship logos. Of course, they have their new clothing as well. Uh, look very dapper. Um, thank you, Andy. Uh, Simon Thompson. A rather daft idea occurred to me the other day. Often you see players knocking in a really fantastic long red, but played with safety in mind, so that the white ends up behind the bolt line. This frequently means the players have to tickle up behind a bolt colour. Very close range shots like this are really, really tricky, as any club player will know, and it's easy to look extremely stupid. What is to stop someone pulling out a miniature cue around chopstick in length and use it just to nibble up behind the green? I would imagine judging the pace of one of these very delicate short-touch shots would be easier with a very short cue. By the way, I actually prefer the solo podcast, as your acerbic sarcasm and dry wit is unfettered. Keep up the good work. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I think that's a compliment. Um, well, I'm going to toss in the name Alec Brown here. Alec Brown was a player in the 1930s, billiards player, and... Um, he did this very thing, playing billiards, to play a, a specific uh, shot. He took out a cue that was the size of a pen. And, you know, everyone was aghast at this. And, and that's why they brought in a rule that the cue had to be of minimum length. So you can't do it because it wouldn't, you know, there's a minimum length uh, stipulated for a snooker cue. Um, yeah, it was frowned upon then. I, I suspect it would be frowned upon now. Um, but that's, that's it, Alec Brown. Uh, he's, uh, Alec Brown, uh, who, who thought he'd get a mention on this podcast, but there we are, he did. In fact, thinking about it, I think he was actually, it may have been a snooker match. Uh, Dominic Dale would know all this. Um, anyway, Alec Brown is the reason why there's a, a minimum length of the queue. Uh, we move on to Owen Burt. I've only ever got in touch once before, but a recent episode brought up a few thoughts, and since I've no close friends that enjoy snooker, I'm afraid you're the sounding board. Well, I like to think we're all friends here, Owen. Uh, on to my three questions observations. A couple of episodes ago, there was some correspondence around average shot times. It got me thinking about Ronnie O'Sullivan's famous 147 in 1997 and how quick that actually was. The official time for this is 5 minutes and 8 seconds. 5 minutes and 8 seconds is 308 seconds. And there are 36 pots to be made in a 147. That comes out at 8.5 seconds per shot for that break. For reference, this is almost exactly twice as quick as Tepchar and News' average shot time for this season. There's no real question to this. I just thought it was interesting to think about how quick that incredible break really was. The thing about that is, uh, Owen, is uh, he was... The cue ball travelled a very short distance, didn't it? Because he was just banging in position every time. It was just rapid fire. And someone wrote in 
during lockdown to say that Len Gandhi, the referee, also should should take some of the credit for just how quickly he, he you know he got the balls back on the spots and and, and generally sort of kept out the way. Uh, Owen's oh, second point is around the Chinese snooker that was mentioned in the same episode. This got me thinking about the Shanghai checkout in darts, which is when you hit single, treble and double 20 to check out 120. So the darts are effectively on top of each other. I'm not sure if there's any connection between the two. It'd be great to get to the bottom of this, this mystery. I've heard that as well, Shanghai in darts. I don't, I don't, I've no idea why they call it that. Uh, <laughs> not, not the most helpful answer, but I'm just being honest. Uh, and he's, he says, it, my final point is more of a suggestion. I found it really interesting to listen to you talking about certain aspects of commentary and broadcast. I especially had no idea that the markers were listening to the commentary. It'd be interested to know when they started, as I remember Ronnie O'Sullivan's foul against Lou Hong Hao a few years ago was called by yourself in commentary, but wasn't overturned. I also have a suggestion for a podcast episode about the day in the life of a snooker commentator, what your day looks like, how you prefer, prepare, how long it takes, the do's and don'ts of commentating, some of the things you see from the comms box, the difference between commentating at the venue and from another location, etc. I think it would be fascinating to hear about. I hear a lot of people apologise for the long emails. However, I feel it's obligatory for snooker podcasts. So you're welcome for the long email. Well, thank you, Owen. Um, again, I think that the, the thing about the day in the life of the commentator, that, that again, could be something you know you could do a video on just to show people how it all works. The point about the Lorraine O'Sullivan, Lou Hong Hao, that was in Crawley, uh, the English Open a few years ago, and um, Ronnie was playing a shot and he had the uh, sort of equipment out. Um, and he fouled a red, I think it was a red with his cue, and yes, I did spot it, um, I mean, I was in, I was sat in the arena, you know, commentary box in front of the table, I did spot it, the referee didn't, Ronnie didn't, and I did mention it in commentary, we showed the replay, and there was an opportunity for the marker there, who was listening to the commentary, to step in, you know, it was a lot of fuss made afterwards, uh, that I should have stepped in, as if I sort of should go running into the arena with a flag or something, which is complete nonsense, you know, it's not up to me to stop the match. I am there to commentate, which is what I did. I pointed out the foul. It's then up to the officials to, if they want to, to take action. On that occasion, they didn't, um, but they could have done. Uh, so, yeah, um, it's been happening for a while. I mean, the, 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 it's, it's nothing new. The markers listening to the commentary. Um, yeah, so on that occasion, <laughs> on that occasion it didn't happen. And it was rather unfortunate business, really, all of it. Um, yes, we'll, we'll leave it there, I think. Finally, Declan. Uh, and now, I, I'll be honest with you, Declan, I can't remember whether I read this out last week or not. So if I did, apologies for the repeats, but just on this business, I, I said earlier we had an email about this business of the BBC putting the scores up in the old days, uh, the break on 44, and then correspondence wrote in to say it's 40. He says, to develop this a little further, I seem to recall from the dim and distant that a notable break threshold was initially set as low as 30 in coverage from the late 70s or early 80s. I'd imagine that as the standards improved with increased coverage and prize money, the notable break threshold was then increased to the heady heights of 40 around 80-81. bit laughable in today's game, but producers and viewers alike were obviously easily impressed in those early days of BBC coverage. Well, of course, uh, the truth is, uh, Declan, that um, very much... Uh, very much in those days it was new and the game, you know, the standard wasn't as high as it is today. It's not criticism, it's just a fact. You listen to some of the early commentary. I mean, there was, there was, when they showed those Crucible Classics during the lockdown, there was one match where the commentator literally said, I think it's say it was Steve Davis, well, you know, Steve uh, on the green and if he pots this, the next ball will be the brown. I mean, it was literally that, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. And obviously things have moved on a bit since then, but uh, yeah, I mean, in the early days, you know, people were, I guess, impressed by by breaks of that size because, uh, you know, it was, it was all kind of new. It was all kind of new. Anyway, that, uh, that completes our, uh, our, well, our podcast. Um, 
And, of course, it's a very busy period coming up. The uh, Welsh Open qualifiers, uh, which are being, again, dragged out on two tables, which just seems to me to be absurd, really. Just get, get it all played as quickly as possible. Um, anyway, that's being played this week in Wolverhampton. Um, it'll be streamed uh, on the uh, on the Eurosport app and all and D- Discovery Plus, which is still only thirty pounds for the year until February the twentieth. I'm not except I'm not I don't take a percentage of that. I'm telling you because I think it's a great bargain. You can watch it. Remember the snooker on Eurosport when it's not on the linear TV. You can watch it on Discovery Plus. Thirty pounds for the whole year until. Uh, the twentieth. Now, I did. I have had tweets from people who don't live in Britain pointing out that the offer is not not applicable in their countries. Apologies for that. I was talking about the UK. I know obviously not everyone lives in the UK, but uh, for British viewers, then that is for a few more days. That is still available. Uh, next week it's the European Masters. It was due to be in Fürth in Germany, but COVID rules have kicked it back to Milton Keynes. Uh, following immediately, it's the Welsh Open in Newport, and then immediately the Nirvana Turkish Masters in. Antalya, um, yes, uh, Michael Holt's already done the, the joke that the dress code is come as you are. And believe me, there'll be more, there'll be more on that theme when the tournament begins. I've got a list written down already. Uh, but it's a, it's a great period for, for the sport as we lead into the World Championship. After Turkey's few days, then it's Gibraltar, then it's straight to the Tour Championship, World Qualifiers, World Championship. So there's going to be a lot of action to follow over the coming weeks. And indeed, we will uh, follow it here on the, the only podcast in, in the world that talks about Alec Brown's miniature queue. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's our promise to you. No one else, uh, you know, there's some good podcasts out there, but you, you don't hear Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo discussing Alec Brown's miniature queue. Um, in the meantime, we're, pr- <laughs> we're proud members. They do have a lot of listeners, though, in fairness, so that's, that's one thing they have over us. But anyway, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out our other podcasts. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But that is it. Thanks for listening. Uh, do uh, please check out my Eurosport column this week on uh, the women's game and making snooker for everyone. And um, that's it. So, as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.